Hey, tennis fans who are listening to Match Point Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We're also members of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm Ben Lewis, joined alongside Mike McIntyre. Mike, March is almost here. The weather here, knock on wood, is getting a bit milder. We have a new women's champion in Dubai. We're seeing Rafa Novak sharing a flight, taking a selfie together. Uh, So there's plenty happening on the tennis circuit. And we welcome another great guest this week. Yeah, one of our regulars. He's the author of The Master, a New York Times bestseller on Roger Federer. Now he's writing The Warrior, another great book upcoming on Rafael Nadal. He's the founder of Tennis and Beyond, which can be found on Substack. And he's also one of the most respected tennis authors of the past several decades. Christopher Clary, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Mike and Ben, good to see you. Good to see you too. And uh, you look like you've been keeping well. For those who are watching on video, you got a much healthier tan than than Ben and myself. But <laughs> as Ben mentioned, hopefully warmer weather's coming. Um, just right off the bat, what's been keeping you busy in the first quarter of 2024, both uh, inside and outside of tennis, if you uh, want to share? Well, I, the reason I'm looking at tennis, I'm actually in San Diego right now, which is where one of the places that I grew up. I'm a Navy kid and military kid from the U.S. And so I lived all over the place. But a lot of my Childhood was spent here in San Diego. I'm back here, uh, you know, supporting my family, my parents, and I'm here to cover the uh, San Diego Open tournament, which is happening this week. And I'll be in Indian Wells as well. So uh, lots of tennis still. I've been working on my Nadal book, a manuscript in progress, and I've been doing a lot of kind of relaunch tennis and beyond that you mentioned in the Substack, writing about uh, the experience of being an older guy playing tennis again. Been out on the court a lot, playing you know three or four times a week with a lot of my old high school teammates, and you know trying to. Uh, keep up with the singles, which is a challenge, but it's been really fun to get back into the game. And I feel like it's going to somehow translate to the writing when I get back into the writing again, you know, being feeling the ball and the strings and kind of understanding what the, uh, you know, the game is, is more like now from playing up, playing it more often. And I, and I covered the Aussie open, you know, from a distance, but I covered it and uh, wrote a lot about it. And um, very interesting to watch some of the developments in in the game. And I'm really eager to see, uh, you know, what happens the rest of the season. I think we got an interesting chance of transition here in a lot of different ways. Yeah, I've really uh, been enjoying reading your pieces on your Substack, which is uh, fantastic. I'll, I'll get into a couple questions about that in a moment. Uh, while you are in San Diego, we should touch on the fact that we have a couple Canadians in action. And uh, Marina Sakushic actually making her debut in 2024. And I feel like a lot of Canadian fans are very hyped about this player because, of course, she was so fantastic helping guide Canada to a big Billy Jean King Cup title, an historic one. And I, I feel like it's, in a sense, a debut for maybe some American fans uh, to, to you know, take note of her game. What what do you know about Marina and what are you maybe expecting to see out of uh, the way she can play uh, this this week? Well, Ben, as you know, I follow tennis pretty closely and I, I didn't know much about Marina, to be honest with you, until the King Cup. Uh, I really hadn't watched her or heard much about her. I know Canada's has had a good pipeline of players not in huge depth in terms of the pro uh, you know quality candidates but obviously high quality based on results in recent years uh, you know and Mike Downey had, I had mentioned her at one point to me um I think um her game is really impressive uh, I'm not sure that she has big league quickness but a great ball striker seems to have uh, real strong tools got a good build for the modern game you know, it's always a question mark how your body's going to hold up with how physical the game is today. But I mean, she she lifted levels uh, without much problem. Mentally, seemed very strong. Obviously, it's easier when nobody has a scouting report on you. Nobody knows much about you. You come out, and uh, I think she surprised a few people, probably less so by the end of the week. But showed a lot of composure, and you know, qualified. I think relatively easy here in San Diego, a couple matches, 
And I think that that's a real nice addition to the draw here. Um, and I will be very curious. I think she has a winnable first round match against not playing one of the big, you know, the big seeds here. No, um, no top three, four or five, six seed. I think she could be do some damage potentially if she's healthy and doing well. I'm not quite sure. Do you guys know why she hasn't played uh, more in the 2024 so far? Injury well, issues. Yeah, I would sense probably just uh, being extra precautious because she had a a lengthy layoff in 2023 due to injury. So I I sense she was resting her body for a prolonged period of time and then not making that trip to Australia, giving herself some extra time. But San Diego seems like a good good place for her to start. And as you mentioned, winning winning two qualifying matches. You know, you mentioned the modern game, and I actually think this is a decent transition point. It's been a bit of a talking point the past week or so in tennis. Uh, the one-handed backhand, uh, and you wrote, wrote a piece about this, going, going, gone. Uh, we have zero one-handers now on the men's game in the top 10 for the first time in the open era. Of course, very few one-handers on the women's side. Do you think this shot is officially a lost art? And what do you think is maybe the, the biggest contributor to that, that we're, we're really just not seeing it any, uh, much more often at all? Yeah, this hits kind of close to home because I, I mean I'm I have a mediocre one hander myself. Um, <laughs> switched from two to one back in my teens. You know, I was playing high school tennis, I've been use it in college tennis. Obviously, everybody's going to have a one hander going forward with the slice. You're always going to have a one handed backhand. Will be always be part of the game. People are going to volley with one hand, but that one handed drive. Um, if you think about it, really, it's not just the open era. We always kind of open era is kind of our default for things. And yeah, since the actually since the ATP ranking started in 73, August of 73, a little over 50 years ago, the very first ones that came out, the top nine guys in the rankings, led by Nastasi, actually, were all one-handed backhands. Number 10 was a guy we'd hear more about named Jimmy Connors. But that was the beginning. That was the very first ATP ranking. And then until now, until this week we're just finishing up, uh, there's always been a one-hander, a one-handed drive player in, in the men's top 10. Woman lost that a long time ago now, but the men's always been there. And honestly, if you go back to uh, the rankings before the ATP rankings, people forget that there were rankings before. They weren't uh, computer rankings, if you will. And honestly, the first ATP ones weren't computerized either. That was just kind of a marketing tool. But um the way if you go back to the, the, the federations and the journalists um, like Bud Collins, the late great Bud Collins was doing rankings annually, sometimes more frequently than that. There has never in the history of lawn tennis professionally, 150 years or so now, ever been any kind of ranking uh, of a top 10 in the men's game where there wasn't a one-handed drive. So it's really a bigger story than just the ATP rankings. It's the whole history of the game. So you know, why is that? This could be a podcast unto itself. So I, I, you guys may feel free to shorten me up here. But the fact of it is, you know, it's um, I think it's it's a combination of several things. It has to do with technology. I think the strings um, and uh, the pace of the game and the speed of the courts, I think, favors the, the platform and stability of the two-hander. I think, you know, with the ability to get the ball to bounce up higher, especially on the serve, that two-handed return on the backhand side, both in singles and doubles, I think honestly is a superior shot to most guys' one-handed returns. And that's a huge factor because you know points are pretty short on the tour. I mean, you're averaging three or four shots a rally. That return is such a big thing. Um, I think also, you know, back in the days when people were using wooden rackets, you weren't going to get power so much from the early ages. I think when you start now with the you know composite and, and graphite rackets, 
the young guys you know, are starting out hitting the ball and the ball is bouncing up. You want to create some power, much easier with two hands for youngsters. So they end up with a two-hander to begin with once the technique on that became clear and they, they stick with it. And on the women's side, it's that desire for more stability, extra power, ability. And once you start playing with it as a junior, I don't know if you guys have two-handers or not. Once you start doing that, you know, generally you don't switch to a one-hander. It's, some people do, but it's it's rare. And I think the more and more that's happened over time, it's been a gradual thing. If you look at the rankings, it's actually been a very steady sort of thing. A couple of little upsurges of one-handers through the years, but not too many. Um, I think the coaches who teach the game at the base levels have hit it two-handers, women's game especially. Um, they're not going to teach a one-hander very comfortably. They're going to go more to the two-hander. And um, the fact that for a while, I think back in the 80s when Volander was playing with the two and doing very well, he felt the need to add the one-handed slice to his game. And it was a good shot, but never a great shot. But now you're seeing more and more guys who are two-handers from the very beginning of their careers as juniors are hitting the one-handed slice at age six, age seven, age eight. So it's they actually have both shots. And frankly, you know, I think I talked about Navratilova in a conversation I had with her in this piece I wrote this week. And Navratilova had a great one-hander, obviously. Use it to come to net, could drive it more flat than topspin and sliced it beautifully and could approach with it. But even she said, she loves the shot and it's a beautiful shot, but honestly, she thinks, you know, really um, if she were doing it, she would teach the the two-hander as a drive and the one-hander as a slice. And some even say you want to have maybe the two-hander return on the backhand side and a one-handed drive at the most. And you've seen guys like Joe Willie Sanga sometimes on tour sort of wishfully try that, that combination. And there are some guys who try to lower ranks in the pros, but no one's done it big time yet. Maybe that'll come. Maybe there'll be a guy who'll hit a, a two-handed return and, and then decide to drive it because you can create with the one-handed drive mm -hmm. uh, those angles and some, and actually Ivan Lubacic, who has a one-hander and coach Federer, you know, tells me based on their studies, you actually can generate more velocity with a great one-hander, Vavrinka style or team style or Tommy Haas style than you can with a two-hander. But I think a two-hander on balance checks more boxes. Well, I'm trying to reverse that trend and uh, I don't play nearly as much as Ben does or you by the sounds of it, but I am a returner with two hands on the backhand side, but I'm going to hit my one hand backhand these days. In the last couple of years, I've thrown that into my very limited repertoire and it's just fun. I don't know. I just, I just feel, uh, I don't know, more traditional, more classic. It feels good when you, when you get it right, which isn't often for me, but uh, that's what I'm doing these days. But I want to talk to you it. about a two hander. And that's um, Rafa Nadal. And I do want to speak about your book that will be upcoming at some point in the future. And and I'm just wondering, is, you know, just having this this Federer book, oh, look, here it is, um, which I thank you again for sending to me. And and we both thank you for inserting a little line on Matchpoint Canada in there in our interview with Jimmy Connors once upon a time. That was an unexpected gem as I was reading through there. Um, but does having one book under your belt uh, on a, a contemporary of, of Nadal's help you with what you're trying to accomplish right now with Rafa? That's a good question. I, I appreciate the question. I, I think, you know, ultimately, you know, you can do it. I didn't know I could do it when I wrote the master. I didn't know, you know, I didn't really know what it took. I didn't know the whole process. Uh, there's a lot of, once you think you think you're finished writing, you're not really finished. There's all the manuscript edits, adjustments. In the case of the master, the book came out before Roger officially retired. He had, a, he played another year. So I just finished revising it. It's been on in a revised form. So it's kind of been this living being for a while. Um, and I think that the knowledge that you actually can do it, you know, definitely helps. And I think the challenge with it is I don't want it to be a, a replica. I don't want it to be the exact same template um, as the, as the Federer book. I want to take a different approach. 
And for me, I think the way to do that, and I think also Rafa, unlike Roger, had written a pretty good autobiography. I mean, it's dated now, but the book Rafa he wrote with John Carlin, I think is quite a good book and um, tells a lot of his early story and goes all over. So I don't think I wanted to go into the, the same kind of biographical detail uh, and cradle to retirement sort of approach I took with Roger. But I I definitely want to get inside um, his career and and sort of what made him the player that he is. So it's a little bit different angle on it. So that's I think that's keeping it fresh. And but the same idea is in play. That is, you want to have as many different voices that can inform you as possible. Use your context, and the, it's both a burden and a benefit to have covered him for so long because I have so much material from all those interviews over the years and all those stories that have been written, all the matches that have been watched. And I, and you got to find a way to kind of cut through all that, find the essential, and. Um, and I don't think any book with too many forehands and backhands in it on tennis, like any tennis article, is not going to be very well read. You need it to be broader than that. But to me, you know, Rafa's uh, achievement that will live on, you know, probably till the end of our lives for sure is going to be 14 French Opens. I mean, I just think it's a phenomenal stat. I mean, Novak isn't far away with 10 Aussie Opens, but you saw this year it didn't work out for him. I don't think he's going to get to 14 in Australia. I just think that's when we talk about Nadal, we're going to think Clay and we're going to think. 14 Frenches for a long, long time. And so I definitely want to really, really give readers uh, a sense of of the surface and the guy and, and how that was done and, and and sort of how remarkable that is and why. Can't wait to read it. And, um, you know, as, as much as 15 would be even more incredible, it seems, unfortunately, even more unlikely that's going to happen with the uh, amount of you know injury issues he's had more recently. And, you know, maybe he can have a nice swan song this summer at the Olympic Games, which, you know, you've called Paris home base for quite a while. I want to ask you about the Olympics coming up this summer and just overall how you feel Olympic tennis is sort of inserts itself in the overall landscape of the sport in terms of its relevance. Clearly we only see it once every four years, but where do you put its importance in the overall picture of the sport? You know, I think it's waxed and waned. Um, I think at the beginning of it, it was, it was more of a administrative push than a player push, to be honest with you. Philippe Chatrier, who was you know, the center court at French Open is named for and kind of the guy who was behind making the modern French Open what it is. The French, uh, both a, a writer and an editor and a, an administrator, president of the International Tennis Federation. It was really his baby to bring it back in. I think the players really took to it and you could see a lot of emotion. You talk to people like Lindsay Davenport, Andre Agassi you know, who've won it and how much it means to them. I know you talked to Rafa about it and he'll definitely put his gold medal in singles and in doubles um, way up there. Even Roger, you know, he didn't win the singles. I know that hurt, but I know that the Vavrinka uh, gold medal in, in doubles that they got in Beijing meant a great deal to Roger. So ultimately the players are the ones, Mike, I think who decide what the Olympics mean, the emotions that they feel, uh, you know, what, uh, what they are able to translate and commute. Unfortunately, as we know, the tennis schedule is just so packed and it does kind of get wedged in there in years like this. It's going to, you know, and also it comes along in, a, in an event where, you know, tennis is happy to be there. And I think tennis is uh, is appreciated in the Olympics. And you can see in the Olympic Village is sort of the, the the fury and furor that gets created when a Federer or Djokovic walks through the village. And these are Serena. People create a whole bunch of, uh, uh, I think, excitement among other athletes who are world-class in what they do. And that's that's always cool to see. But it's also part of this big festival and kind of gets lost in the shuffle a little bit. I personally think it's good it's there. I would rather see it be a team event than an individual event. I think if I had my brothers, um, but that's not what they're going to do. I think they're going to keep it individual. Um, I don't know in a situation like Wimbledon, uh, when they had the Wimbledon 
competition and then the Olympics there just a few weeks later, it'll be very similar this time with Paris and Roland Garros. It's great to use these historic venues, but it seems sort of strange to have it be so close to the actual event that's being played. It'll be very close again this year too. So I think that's kind of a bummer. She had it like a year later or whatever else or a little more separation, but it's going to feel inevitably a little bit like a, a, you know, the second version of the French Open this year when it's played. And also, you know, the same guys are will be gunning for it. I know Rafa has it high, high on his list. And um, I wouldn't count him out entirely, though, for the for Roland Garros. I just think he looks so very good. He didn't play much in Australia, but he looked very, very good when he did play. And his game looked very much up to date and very relevant. And, you know, his edge on clay historically is so big. And even in recent years, he's managed to always sort of rise. He's never been pushed in a final, really, at, at the French Open. So, I, you know, I'm not saying he's the favorite, but I, I, I wouldn't call him a long shot by any means. Yeah, yeah, no no question about that. Uh, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the women's side and seeing a couple WTA 1000s and just getting off of Dubai. And, you know, it's always... I think different and yet exciting to see a couple of brand new finalists and, and just a final you're not really used to. And, and Jasmine Paulini, certainly a name that was not really top of mind of thinking someone who could take home a title in Dubai, but she defeated Anna Kalinskaya for the biggest title of her career. What did you make of maybe the past couple of weeks of tennis uh, on the women's side, Paulini breaking through and which of the women should we feel are maybe on most solid footing heading to Indian Wells in March, which is obviously the, the biggest stretch uh, in, until we shift over to the clay season? No, that's a good question. I mean, I, you, you sort of felt like you know, watching Sabalenka rip through the Australian Open, watching, you know, the way Sviantec finished the season in, in 23, so strong. Um, and then Sviantec winning, obviously, in Doha, in pretty fine fashion as well. You kind of felt like those two were separating themselves. Rebacca and I had looked very, very good. A surprise loss against Blinkova in that long tiebreaker in Australia. Kind of caught a lot of us by surprise. She was my favorite to win there. But she's looked good this season. She got ill in Dubai, so perhaps she's ready to still be strong. But I still think the women's game has tremendous depth. And I mean, and ultimately, uh, Paulini winning. I mean, Paulini, she played in the final in, against Canada in the King Cup just uh, in the last yep. year. And I think Layla, Layla beat her, right? In that, in that final in that final uh, tie. But I I just think there's so much depth in terms of what people are able to do in terms of doing damage in any given week. I think when you start stacking up the tournaments back-to-back, obviously players are going to have a little more difficulty back physical quality of each match they have to win. And um, But I think the thing that really strikes me is just how, how dangerous qualifiers are becoming. I mean, look at Diana Yastremska in Australia – getting to the semis, you know, Raducanu winning and the U S open. I think they were, if I'm not mistaken, three lucky losers in the women's tour who won tournaments last year, not even qualifiers in the normal way, but lucky losers. Yeah. And there, I think there before that in the history of women's tennis, there have been three who'd won anytime. And in one year or maybe even one summer, there were three other ones. So it's, I think that's, that's a very strong reflection of, of how much that sort of 20 to 100 quality player has lifted. Some might argue that it also shows that uh, the top players maybe aren't as good as they used to be or the edge that they used to have isn't as big because maybe they don't have uh, the same tool set. I don't know about that. I mean, Sviantec and Sabalenka are supreme athletes, but I just think it shows that uh, there's been a little bit of democratization in terms of the way that the game is played and and pe- people's ability to handle big-time power and pace and produce their own. And you know, Paulini has a very uh, dynamic, explosive game, but you wouldn't pick her as a favorite to win a Grand Slam by any means or go even go deep, but she put it all together, won some tight matches and, and came through. 
And um, so I, I just feel like it just shows that, yes, there are a core of players who look at the, at the ranking points who've established themselves at top four, but, you know, uh, Sabalenka losing early in Dubai where she kind of came in with a mental block, it looked like. Coco Goff, you thought she might tick off after winning the U.S. Open. She hasn't done that. Has had some early losses. Has looked vulnerable in the same ways that she did before with the forehand and the second serve breaking down on occasion. I think given the course of a whole season, I'd be surprised if you don't see Sabalenka, Sviantec, Rybakina, and Goff sort of ranked in the top four by the end of the year. I think that's a pretty good bet. I'll be curious to see how Jessica Pagula comes back after a rest, maybe a new coaching dynamic here rest of the season. But I think week to week, anything can happen. One one player I want to ask you about in my uh, parting question for you and someone you mentioned a couple times there who can also handle power and pace is uh, Leila Annie Fernandez. You got to speak with her uh, recently uh, while you're in San Diego, and she reminded us all in the last couple of weeks of her immense talent, getting some big wins in Doha and creeping back towards the top 30 in the WTA rankings. Can you reveal a little bit about your chat with her in San Diego and what sort of vibes she's given you for what she can accomplish in 2024? You know, I was really impressed with Layla. I, I, I've, I've interviewed her, I think I interviewed her a few years ago when she was maybe 16 or 17. Um, and this was a the draw ceremony. And they asked a couple of WTA players to come to the draw ceremony. I emceed it. It was a small gathering, maybe 80 people or so for the for the draw. And um, Layla and Diana Yastremska were there for it, so the, the two of them. And I was just, I kind of steered the conversation to other topics and just uh, you know, state of play. Talked a lot about King Cup with Layla, and you could tell how much that victory really, really, really meant to her. And talked about her decision to um, not go to someplace warm for her preseason training, and to stay in Montreal and and run through the snow snow drifts or whatever it was in the city, and kind of make her connection with her own culture all the deeper. And it was like I was struck by you know, just a lot of the intentionality of of Layla and her ability to express a lot of um, a lot of depth. A lot of different topics. We talked about her new foundation that she just started, um, which is one that she wants to help. Uh, it's very, you know, small scale for now, but at the age of 21, deciding she wants to start a foundation and give some grants to uh, aspiring athletes, people who need money from different backgrounds. Talked about the immigrant journey in Canada, which she's been pretty involved with recently and doing some some work on that. I just thought there was it was cool to have a, a forum like that where you you kind of got out of the post-match press conference and talked about some broader topics. And also talked about her sister, Bianca, I guess, who's now at UCLA, just started out. And Diana Yastremska, as you might know, you know, has a younger sister as well. When Ukraine war broke out, she basically got across the border with her younger sister and was her personal chaperone and protector for six months. They traveled together. Her parents weren't able to join them for six months after the war. So they obviously a very different situation with Layla and, and her sister, but talking about that idea of having a tennis sibling. So we, we covered a lot of ground and and I just thought it was it was fun to, to hear uh very global person truly trilingual and and it was it was a very enjoyable evening she's a real popular one and and has been and and i've said before our all-time highest rated episode was one with leilani a couple years ago in mexico so she's got a certain charm and appeal and uh you know beyond her years wise but beyond her years already for sure yeah, 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 without a doubt. Uh, Chris, it's always an absolute pleasure to to catch up with you uh, on on the podcast. I've been, as I said, enjoying reading your Substack, and in fact, uh, in part 
inspired me to to start my own, which uh, I, I did a few months ago. So uh, thanks for your uh, continued writing of tennis. I'll plug my uh, my Substack at the end of this episode too. But uh, yeah, we we always appreciate appreciate your great insights, and I uh, can't wait to uh, read your your latest book when it does eventually come out, and uh, follow all your work. Well, good luck with the Substack, Ben. It's a nice forum. It definitely is. It's it a is. lot of freedom, and uh, it's only problem is you got to do all your own layouts and your own photo choices, which can take a long time <laughs> if you're That's me. True. <laughs> but I like it. And uh, good luck to you guys. It's good to see your podcast thriving. I think I was one of your early guests. And uh, it's nice to see you guys uh, finding your groove and, and keeping it going. Appreciate that. And uh, we'll definitely have to have you back when uh, The Warrior comes out so you can chat a little bit more about that. Appreciate that. All right. Take care. That is our guest for this week, uh, Christopher Clary. We don't have too much time left here with this episode, Mike. But uh, just one note that I found fascinating over this past week is like a youth movement emerging on the men's side. And Karen Hatchinov won the title in Doha, but it was 18-year-old Jakob Mensik, who's now into the top 100 and breaking through to the finals in Brazil. Zhao Fonseca, youngest ATP quarterfinalist in 10 years. It's like there's a new generation of these players suddenly emerging and playing just amazing tennis. Well, there's always going to be one. And it's funny because Djokovic still sticking around. Adal, hopefully we get some more from him. And you look at the younger guys now lately, they've been occupying, you know, what we've been talking about, the tennis world's been talking about, like Yannick Sinner and uh, and and Shelton as well, Ben Shelton. But there's always more, and they're just waiting for their opportunity. And they probably see what's happening with the Sheltons and the Sinners of the world. And they think, hey, we're not too far off from that. And they want to assert themselves. And there's always another crop of tennis players coming up. And that's what makes this sport you know, so exciting. It's never stagnant. It's never status quo. And uh, it's never going to look the same one month to the next. So I, I love finding out about these young tennis players. It's a lot of work, though, don't you think, too, on one hand, to, to get up to speed on all the new players that are coming. Uh, it, it's just never ending, really, truly. Yeah, I know. It's it's a new face every week. Uh, I mean, our, right now, Arthur Fees, Luca Van Ash, Alex Mickelson, Mensik, all inside the top 100, all teenage players. Uh, I'll just mention this week, Acapulco, we have Felix Ojealiasim in action in Dubai. Denis Shapovalov is in the field. Very interesting opening round match against Andy Murray and Danil Medvedev is returning there. His first event since the Australian Open. We mentioned, Mike, last week we had a signed tennis ball from the Davis Cup qualifier from Milos Raonic. And I have a winner of said tennis ball. Uh, is it is it Blair Henley? Because she was really excited last week to get <laughs> in on that It's not Blair one. Henley. Uh, sorry, Blair, if you're listening. Uh, no, our winner is Milan Moriswala. Uh, we will contact you. Congratulations. You've won a signed tennis ball from Milos Raonic. Uh, fingers crossed we get to see Milos back on the court uh, healthy uh, and, yeah. and well soon. Maybe Maybe for the sunshine double. He was hoping to be able to play in Dubai, but just what happened in, in Rotterdam, just not uh, not allowing him to to be healthy enough. So I know his plan was to play, he said to me, uh, Indian Wells and Miami. Not sure how realistic that will be, but we wish him all the best because he's been through a lot the last couple of years. Tennis fans certainly know that. I think when he's healthy, he's still got a lot to give and, uh, and still has a, a lot to leave on the sport before he retires, if his body can just cooperate and and we all know, as we were talking to Chris earlier about the Paris Olympics, that's Milos's ultimate goal this year is he wants to play in the Olympic Games. He wants to represent his country one more time. And, um, you know, we sure hope he's able to do that. Yeah, that would be incredible to see. Before we wrap, I'm going to give a, a shout out as well to Jordan Thompson winning the first title of his career at age 29. 
always hard to win a first uh, ATP title in general. We don't we don't give enough credit to to the difficulty of just winning a title on its own. It's like we take them for granted. So for him to beat Casperud in a final in Los Cabos, he also won the doubles crown there. So uh, definitely the week of his life for Jordan Thompson. Uh, plenty of action ahead, as I said, Acapulco, Dubai. And Mike, we're uh, coming back for another episode next week. You've been listening to Matchpoint Canada, the official podcast of Tennis Canada. We'll talk to you next time.